right, and I believe we're underway. Um, I want to thank everybody who's watching episode two of Dano Says So. Today I'm interviewing Vic Bondi. Vic stands out amongst the people in the first dozen or so guests on this project and that he's the only one I've never met in person and never had a conversation with. Um, that, hey, that could either be great or that, that, or that could be a real nightmare. Who knows? We're coming at it cold. Exactly. Um, for those of you who don't know, Vic is a cornerstone in American hardcore, pretty much a forefather, particularly in Chicago, with uh, Articles of Faith, who I was very familiar with as a teenager, but then as an actual, actual touring musician myself, Alloy was a mainstay, you know, Joan, Joan's very impressed. Um, the things you've done in the last few years, I'm envious of the fact that your howl is perfectly intact. You know, you've still got this terrifying screech that I would kill for. You know, I can spot oh. the da- I can spot the damage in my voice. Oh, you got a pretty good howl. Well, thanks. Yeah. Then beyond that fact that this is this is our introduction to each other, he's also the only guest during these really sort of crazy times that I have scheduled right now who has an academic background in history, an actual PhD in history. So okay. if you're cool with that, Vic, that's going to be my first topic. Um, there are insane things going on right now between the pandemic, between what I think you and I both see as a reptile presidency, uh, with, you know, an economy that's probably got nastier, nastier miles ahead than people realize. Um and with a clearly broke electoral system, what to you seems like the biggest emergency? So, you know, the way that I, um, so I actually wrote my dissertation on the origin of the concept of totalitarianism, right? So Giovanni Gentili, who was a, a Italian political scientist and theorist coined the term in 1921. And for him, it was, um, it was a positive thing. You know, he and Mussolini, they shared this contempt of human beings and human nature. The belief was that human beings wanted to be dominated and freedom was a burden and the state would relieve them of that burden, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the concept was you could create a total state where all human freedom was eradicated and all choices were made by the government on the behalf of people and they would actually be happier as a consequence of that. And, um, you know, the concept never actually has ever been real. There's no state in human history that's achieved that kind of total overwhelming of human freedoms and the aspirations of people for freedom. And so I don't think that's going to happen here either, because even in, in the worst states, in Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia, uh, people find mechanisms of resistance against state authority. People find ways of finding the freedom that's important to them, you know, um, uh, as awful as capitalism can be and is, especially in this moment. Uh, people manage to find lots of freedom within its confines, maybe more so than uh, they would have in the medieval church or more so than they would have in Mao's China. But um, you know, it depends on who you are and where you are, right? So it's easy to say that from the perspective of my my deck at my house. I'm mm-hmm. not making shoes in Bangladesh for me to wear, right? Well, here's my thinking. The first thing that crosses my mind while you're saying that is, you know, no example of that actually being successful or of that, of that theory ever actually 
finding its way into true practice. A human being is always finding their way to that freedom. Is there a positive example like that in a public so clearly divided? I mean, this is well, sure. This I mean, has like, always, you know, this has always been a, a sort of left-right country in 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 within relative confines. And I grew up very much in a household where I had a, where I had a, an outspoken liberal mom, no man in the house, and a very outspoken conservative grandmother. Mm-hmm. So it was like an all-female, all-in-the-family around that table. Mm-hmm. But it's much worse now. Mm-hmm. And you still think we can find our way to our best I don't, interests? I don't, th- I don't think it's worse now. My, my cousin doesn't have to live in the closet, right? She's out and she's married. And, okay. You know, like, um, again, it depends on who you are and where your role in society is. If you're one of these Mexican children locked up in uh, ICE detention on the border, <laughs> it's, you know, abstract discussions of totalitarianism are ridiculous, right? You're locked right. up. So uh, it depends on who you are and where you are at what time. So from their perspective, it's probably pretty goddamn awful. Um, and from my perspective, it's pretty goddamn awful because they're locked up. But, you know, my cousin is out. Um, uh, my, my mother doesn't want for anything because she's elderly, right? Um, okay. There's lots of, you know, there's lots of ways in which you can point to substantial gains by people in the world in which we live in. And you would have been able to point at them more definitively three years ago. Uh, but nonetheless, they're, they're kind of there. So, but that doesn't mean that the components of the society that exist today that are determined to crush out human freedom aren't on the march and, 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 and in action, right? And so, again, to go back to capitalism as a good starting point for that, the way that I, the way that I came up in the history profession, because I taught for eight years, I wrote four books, um, the way that I came up in history was really by studying a lot of Marx. And so I'm pretty fluent in my Marxist dogma. Uh, But then also I studied a lot of American pragmatism, John Dewey, Charles Peirce, William James, um, Richard Rorty, John Rawls. So I have a a more firm grounding in a different um, philosophical and economic tradition than just Marxism. Mm -hmm. And I would say when when I was, um, the model when I was in graduate school that I was trying to understand the world through was one of class conflict, and it doesn't seem to me to explain stuff anymore. I think what, what is more explanatory now as a model for what's going on is this idea of elite governance and elite conflict. So, and actually, some Italian political theorists like Pareto and Gramsci are more strong partisans of this perspective. Uh, Max Weber really um, put this kind of concept on the map uh, in the latter part of the 19th century. But what I see really in the narrative of history now is kind of elite conflict. And elites manage to create state systems that benefit and uh, reward them. So in the legal profession, you have a huge argument between those scholars who argue that the law represents an unfolding of an agency of justice that human beings are imposing on a severe natural world order. 
versus those who say the law is nothing more than obfuscation and rationalization of the relationships of, of consequence for wealthy elites, right? So every, every wealthy elite will craft a legal structure that protects them in their status against everybody else. And, um, you know, you can look at Trump trying to take over the Justice Department and the way in which he's like directly rewarding his partisans and say that that makes a lot of sense, right? You, it's, you can, it, it, it would appear to bear out what you're saying in other exact fashion. Yeah. 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 Right. You're like you would say, well, this is this is the attempt to capture the justice system on behalf of a very corrupt elite. I mean, literally, I was reading the paper today, literally Trump and his friends made money off of that big trillion dollar um congressional aid package right they were like shuttling money to his friends and then his friends are shuttling money back to him through uh his re-election campaign right so you know they're and then what they're doing is they're firing all the all the whistleblowers and they're firing all the responsible parties who would surface this information and and make of it a really preeminent public scandal because they don't want it coming out so and then the next step, if they get if they get in their their second four years, when they'll completely take over the federal judiciary, is to absolutely normalize that level of corruption and put all the legal barriers around it that they possibly can. Right. So, and and it's not that they haven't done this all along. That's what the capitalists. Well, that was what I was going to ask you: is, is is it maybe simply bolder on, on its face? You know. Well, it, it it so you know if you were a partisan of Charles Beard, he was like a, one of the dean of American. Uh, historians at the beginning of the 20th century, and he wrote a book about the founding fathers that argued that um, the American Revolution was economically uh, derived in their benefit, that they they promulgated this revolution just to gain economically and all of the um, high-minded and high-sounding rhetoric that they put in the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights was nothing more than obfuscation of their gains that they mm-hmm. they were involved in. And I think it's a very powerful interpretive framework, Beards. You can look at the entire history of the United States and say every single step in that process is a process by which these economic elites grab control of markets and resources in the United States and turn them to their benefit. Uh, you can also say about the elites is there's no downward mobility for the elite, right? So, uh, and uh, there's a guy, C. Wright Mills, I don't know if you know his books in the 50s, The Power Elite. He was a strong partisan of this concept too, but um, there's no word downward mobility for the elite, right? They go to the best schools, they have the best lawyers, and and you can be an absolute fucking imbecile mm-hmm. and be president of the United States if you come from and that. So area. we've learned, yeah, yeah, right. So there's no downward mobility for these people, right? Like once in a while, there's a rare one who's so addled on drugs, and and you know, so such a nihilists that they bomb out of the system but but those elites they build mechanisms you know i i've worked i've worked in my software career with some very wealthy people and they have social mechanisms that insulate them from the stuff that you and i contend with on a daily well what i was going to ask you is in you know our career paths couldn't be more different away from the microphone i'm a restaurateur and most of most of the 20 years i've been doing that i was actually running some fairly sketchy dive bars uh-huh. Now I actually, now I actually do high volume restaurant touring, but uh, you must be having a tough time of it right now, though, right? 
I am, and it's not my favorite thing to talk about. For one thing, HIPAA laws and everything else, when I discuss conditions in my store, yeah, there are privacy issues there. But suffice yeah. to say, suffice to say, I'm not one of these people who can't say I don't know anyone with the virus. Right. You know, and yeah, we're down to just takeout, no dining room, all of that. You know, um, before I lose my trend of thought, uh, particularly when it was bars and gastro pubs, things like that, over the last decade, I would be a, a very common thing is very rich men who succeed in some other field will open a high end restaurant or bar or gastro pub as a toy. Right. And so I've worked for, you know, I worked for a hospital, multi, multi, multi millionaire. Yeah. a string of 10 hospitals on the East Coast. And I was exposed to a level of behavior and a level of self-excuse and a level of tight entitlement that never seemed real to me before. Yeah. And in very short order, that, is, that struck me as the same character that I see in the presidency now. And what I was going to say, that took me a long time to get where I was going. Other than FDR, and I mean, I guess, I guess Kennedy. Now, Kennedy came from wealth, but has there... Has the presidency ever fallen and really truly fallen into the hands of the billionaire class before? Sure. McKinley. I mean, Warren G. Harding, right? Like it's, this isn't, this isn't that new. Uh, You know, Warren G. Harding was famous for the teapots dome scandal. I mean, Mm -hmm. Herbert Hoover was actually a multimillionaire, but he was a kind of an amazing character. He, he, he was a engineer and a miner and he he made his fortune in mining. Um, And then he went on to some really phenomenal, um, kind of social service stuff, especially after the First World War, ensuring that Europe didn't starve. Um, but this isn't the first time you've had a multimillionaire, and, and Donald Trump's no billionaire, he just lies about that shit. Um, yeah, no, I, I get a kick out of listening to Mark, Mark Cuban analyze that. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, and, and uh, you know, the billionaires that I have known were men of kind of well, it's like you, my encounter with very super wealthy people, and I've had, you know, I've worked for a few, uh, has, they indicate to me, you know, on one hand, there are, with some of those people that I've worked for, their skill and talent that was publicized was real and was capable, and they were very visionary people. That, and some of them were more humble than others. Uh, most of them had really outside outsize egos and a lot of them like you said once they achieve a certain level of success they have a belief in their own capacity that's all out of scope with their actual ability so it's it's almost inevitable that a businessman successful in one career decides that he can be successful in many other careers like that's why so many of them go into politics because they're like well if i can run a company i can run a state you know and um but you know, even more so, they'll go into fields where they have no business, no business being right. Um, education. I I can't tell you how many billionaires I've seen go into education and fuck it up. Like just no way they get that one right. So when you when you move beyond when you move beyond the utilitarian calculus that seems to be hardwired into their brain pans, a lot of these guys have a very difficult time adapting to reality. And a lot of times they don't give a damn, right? So uh, in one incarnation, uh, I ended up working for people who worked for Soros when he took over, uh, his hedge fund took over one company that I worked at. And that was a really miserable affair. I mean, those guys, they're every bit as evil and awful as you've heard. They're, they're mm-hmm. really pretty appalling. You, op- you optimistic at all about November? Because I mean, you don't, you don't, 
you're not non-specific in your posting and in sharing your public thinking. And you and I had fun and sort of became familiar with each other running, you know, running with that the quarterback matters tagline. Yeah, yeah. Um, but do you really think anything good can happen in the court in the in the in the quarterback position in November? Well, I mean, if Trump is out, it's a lot better for everybody, right? Like, I mean, he's just he's just so <laughs> he's so incredibly appalling, and and four more years really would be would be catastrophic for the country. I mean, it's already probably pretty catastrophic. I don't know how long it'll take us to get out from under where we're at today. Just the ecological damage that he's done won't even show up for another 10 years. And then it'll take another 40 or 50 to undo it if it can be undone, right? Um, you know, just, you know, taking the American, United States out of the World Health Organization in the middle of a pandemic, right? Like this, this level of obdurate stupidity um, it, it's just, it's just impossible, right? Like the pandemic response in and of itself, just the, just the nation to nation comparison and the numbers leave me thinking history is going to hang this guy by his toes for that shit. Well, it depends upon who writes the history though, right? Um, you, you know, so, um, I think if you, if, if Trump seizes the presidency, whether he wins it or not, uh, and the, the Republican elites who are backing him. See, the thing is, it's not just him. Like, he's an imbecile. And, mm-hmm. and, and people know this, but he's, he is a useful fool. And for the men who actually are really benefiting from this, they want that guy in there because he can gin up that base and give them the semi-legitimacy of some popular mandate that he doesn't really have, but it seems like it. So they want him in there, um, and they don't, they don't care you know, that he's fucking Hope Hicks or that, you know, what he's doing to the <laughs> immigrants in the border or what he, what he did with the students this week. Like, like what the hell is that? You're, you know, you either go to school in person or you leave the country. What, what, who, who, who thinks like right. that, right? Um, so uh, those Republican elites will continue to back this guy because they're benefiting mightily from it. And you can see the, the financial benefits, you know, again, the economic damage that he's done, even, even if we get him out, it'll mm-hmm. take, it'll take a dozen years. It'll take two presidencies at least to recover from the economic damage that he's done to the country and the looting right. and the thievery. It's just going to take a long time because um, these are things that, that don't change overnight. You got anything predictive though? You think, you think, He's, it seems to me that at least electorally, he's whittled himself himself down to exclusively his most fervent base. He may not. He may not. He may. He may be a much more exposed product this time around. I don't think he can win legitimately, but I'm not really sure he won legitimately last time. So, mm-hmm. you know, the question is the question is how illegitimate will they be? Like, will they just seize the presidency and seize the federal government? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. He should have been impeached and they didn't impeach him. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't really know where their line is. I actually thought when 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 the protesters were in front of the White House and he moved him out and he did his Bible stunt. And then that night there was all these news reports about how there were paratroopers coming into D.C. Right. I was like, oh, my God, man, is this is this the is this the military coup? And then, right. and then the military backed out of that. Um, and, you know, my father was 30 years in the Navy, so I grew up in a military household. So I'm not, 
I'm not anti-military in the individual. Uh, the United mm -hmm. States military right now hasn't done anything really good for the world probably since the Second World War, but we'll set, we'll set that aside for a bit. Okay. Uh, but I mean, it was interesting to me that they weren't willing to take that step at that time. Now, no, I was, I found that very encouraging. Yeah, but you don't know whether institutionally then he took a run at it, it failed. And so now institutionally, what he's going to do is go in there and clear out everybody that would get in his way next time. Right. Right. So well, you don't, you, you don't know that they wouldn't then we get to November and there's a pandemic or the, the October surprises, there's a terrorist attack or war with Iran or some, some, some shell game. Yeah, some shell game. And then they say, yeah, we got to send the troops in. And before you know it, it's there, right? So yeah. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think they'll go there because to be honest with you, there's too much money to be made otherwise, right? Okay. So, you know, besides being an academic, the 30 years of, well, not 30 years, but 20, 25 years that I've been in software, you know, I don't think that the software executives that I knew know would be too thrilled about a military authoritarian state mm -hmm. uh, instituted in the United States. I, I think they would find it very difficult to do business that way. And right. they're making enough money with the way things are now that I don't think they would want to change that. But I don't know. I'm not a member of that elite. I don't know. I, I've associated with them. I've worked for them, but I'm not them. So I don't know. Um. With that, I'd kind of like to pivot to music. Um, you're, one, you're one of a few people that I'm going to be talking to where music and politics clearly intertwine. Um, I watched, I don't know what your absolute most recent piece of work was today, but I watched this uh, tune where the refrain was two things, the report abuse and, you know, raise your voice, your voice is oh, raised. Oh, raised, yeah. Right? Yeah. No, but it, but it was great. It was, ex it was extremely timely. What's funny is uh, what, what I was thinking about while I was watching is this is one of the only people of my generation or even a few years older who seems to have become even more specific and more topical with time. Uh, why do you think that is in either your case or why others go the other direction? Because really, money is the motivation and music is all but dead. So, so one thing is, is you can't make money with music much anymore, right? Right. So, uh, what, one of the... <laughs> both the curse and the blessing of the current condition is if you're making music, it's because you really, really love it because it's part of your internal organization. You have to, I've never been able to make a living with money, right? Like, or with music. Uh, uh, I, I took a shot at it in the, in the eighties. I dropped out of, of college for a little bit and played in articles of faith, but that was about the only run that I took of it. It was, there was a brief moment there when it looked like Alloy was going to become kind of a big so thing. Only, the only time I saw Alloy, I saw Alloy in Sacramento and Zach was on a break from Rage and Rancid was in, was in its fetal form. I mean, if that's, the, if, that's not, if that's not the slip and slide to high commercial, I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, well, that was, that was actually, I'm, I'm glad you were at that show. That was the only time I've ever seen Rancid. Yeah. Um, the, you know, uh, you know, but I've never been able to make a living with music. So I've had to find my way elsewhere, but I've never stopped playing music. Like you said, I've done 30 albums, you know, and I've been in six different bands. I'm in a band currently. Right. So, you know, uh, I'm actually in three bands right now. I mean, oh, yeah? yeah. So I'm in the band that I'm in here in Seattle, Redshift. I'm in dead ending the band out of Chicago with Jeff Dean and uh, Derek Grant. And we're, 
putting out a new single, actually. And uh, then I'm in Report Suspicious Activity with Jay Robbins. And uh, we did a record two years ago. I don't want to interrupt Trent. I thought that is an odd combination of voices in the songs where he also, where he also throws in. Because you're both very melodic in terms of your, the writing of the music, but the two voices couldn't be more different. Well, I mean, what's great about that band is Eric sings too. Eric Denno, uh, who is in Kerosene 454, and he's the other guitarist in RSA. And I, I really like that about that band. I mean, part of the joy of music for me is the collaboration. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I've never been, a, I, I've played some acoustic shows and I play by myself, but I, I really like the, the, the part of this where you give and take and you work with somebody else to come up with something really interesting, something unexpected, something unexplained. Uh, something greater than the sum of its parts, right? Um, I, I, that's been, that's the real joy of music. And RSA is, is a really, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful band to be part of because yes, everybody, it's me and Eric and Jay and um, Darren Zentek who played drums in Kerosene 454. They're all outstanding guys. They're really upstanding and um, they're just mentions. So, you know, to be able to, and they're skilled and talented. So to be able to work with guys of that talent, I mean, whenever I'm, I'm in Jay's presence, it's just like, you know, this guy knows music out of his wazoo. So. uh, We knew each other, you know, this thing, you know, in in something that you have online, you refer to yourself. It's on your, it's on, it's on a band camp where you refer to having been doing this for the last 40 years. Right. Yeah. I was thinking to myself in 1990, I would say, Jay Robbins is just an example. See, here's a musician. I know him. I mean, on the tour, I stayed in the Jawbox house. I think it was one of the fellows from Shudder to Think or something had the big room in the basement, right? Yeah. Had a piano in it and everything else, right? All of the people mm-hmm. involved in that story, story story, could pass each other on the street and potentially not recognize each other now because so much time has passed. To my consciousness, this music always existed on a short timeline and was always a part of being kids. And the fact that it's still here and maybe even a bigger part of my life in middle age, very confusing sometimes. So, you know, uh, you know, William James, the American philosopher, he, he had at the end of the 19th century, a couple of really great books uh, on psychology. He actually was kind of the, one of the founding fathers of American psychology. And um, he talked about the moral equivalent of war that young men in particular needed in their youth the moral equivalent of war in which to place their aggression and their passion and uh, their ambition. And so to me, especially because, you know, hardcore punks born in the late seventies, early eighties coming out of the Vietnam war, which was a catastrophe for the United States. And we all knew it was a catastrophe. So if you were like me, a teenager growing up in the seventies in a military household and Mm -hmm. you watch this catastrophe unfold, there was no way that you were going to go into the service and there was no way you were going to get drafted and you were, you were right. military from the world word go, but you were still a young man poisoned with testosterone and, uh, you know, yeah. feeling your oats and, you know, wanting to fight. So hardcore punk was really kind of that moral alternative to war, right? Um, the moral equivalent of war. So, not a comparison I've ever heard made before, so kudos yeah. for that. And and so what it what it was was this great outlet, and I don't mean to I don't mean to just 
say it was exclusively a masculine province and uh, or a straight male province. I mean, there was there were a lot of people of color in that scene. There were a lot of people of uh, gender alternative in that scene. There were a lot of women in that scene. Although, like I think the 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 boys in that scene, and they were boys. They weren't men. They didn't understand their obligation as men. Um, they didn't stand. They didn't understand their responsibilities as men. They were boys, so they made a lot of stupid mistakes. One of the stupid mistakes they made a lot was devaluing the women that were participants in that scene. My sister was a big participant in the DC scene, and she used to complain about it all the time, and rightfully so, because those boys were a little. That early DC scene was very uh, crew. It was crew. Yeah. You were part of the crew, right? And you were either in the crew or you were out of the crew, right? Like the guys from Scream were out of the crew and they, they used to complain about that. And then they kind of made their way into the crew. But a lot of the women in that scene were out of the crew too. And they were treated subordinate. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but the moral equivalent of war, it, it, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was that for us. And I think what's astonishing about being a, an elderly person now, cause I am at this point is the way that my father's generation or my grandfather's generation would talk to each other. You know, my grandfather's generation, you would, you would go over to your grandpa's house once in a while and, and he'd have a friend over who he was in the army with. Right. And they had this incredible bond, even though like, let's say they hadn't seen each other in 10 years. Right. right. And they had that bond cause they went through the service together. They went through boot camp together. They served in Korea together or my grandfather was in the second world war. They served together in the Pacific. So they would have that, that bond. I still have that bond with the guys that I was in that original scene with. And, and, you know, with a pretty successful career in software, I would say I work with a lot of wonderful people in software, but none of them are friends for me the way that Dave Shields from Articles of Faith or mm -hmm. Joe Scuderi from Articles of Faith or Jay Robbins, you know, none, none of the way Jeff Dean, none of the way these guys are friends to me. I hear you that are in my heart. Right. And, and, you know, I don't see Dave very much anymore. I'll see him once every six or seven years, but it's just like, like I know the guy in, I know the guy in the depth of my heart. So for us, I think it was that moral equivalent of the war. It was this, it was this thing that you, this arc that you went through at a very formative stage in your life where a lot of your passion and essence was, was, was placed into kind of, it was kind of a pseudo conflict, a pseudo conflict, not in, in any way the same stakes or uh, uh, situation as war, but in terms of its emotional, its affect on you, equivalent, not, not equivalent socially, not equivalent uh, 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 morally, not equivalent um, economically, but emotionally, the passage that you would go through as a, as a young man in your 20s uh, that was that. It, it, and it was a good thing. If you think about it, like, yeah, we were all going to hardcore shows, shows. We weren't going into the army and it was, you know, there was that period from, uh, you know, the collapse of Vietnam really until the first Gulf war, there were some minor, uh, affairs there with, uh, Grenada and Panama, but you know, there weren't any major conflicts. Um, so I, I was born in 67. Um, I got into this, this music young, but not youngish. I was never the baby in my scene, you know? Um, I remember 
it was such an odd matter of timing because uh, when they, when everybody was worried they were going to be instituting the draft during the first Gulf War, right? There was a lot of concern about it. I was past draft age, and the other three members of my band were not. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it was it was it was maybe our one big historical threat that we actually took seriously or really truly understood affected our our actual lives. But yeah, you're right. People from that that scene. I've been doing music. I've been doing food service for 20 years. I've been doing music for 30 some odd years. There's no comparison in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, so I have a question for you. It's a hypothetical. Uh, you 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 uh, were generous enough to say that there was a one point at which you gave a, you know, took a mild stab at trying to make a living and survive survive off of music, which I have wished I could do as well, right? But so, and you've also dealt in fairly high end commerce and software business. Where are the lines for you? Where's the where where's the thou shalt not pass on what you would do to to distribute your music, put your music in front of people. In other words, you know, labels aren't what they used to be and everything else, but there are certain mechanics, certain businesses, certain sources of revenue that you would never want anywhere near your creativity. Well, so first of all, at this stage of my life, there's probably no financial offer that would come to, well, could could the Republican National Committee use bad attitude in a commercial? I would I, <laughs> I would fucking sue them. You, you, I would mortgage this house and find the money to sue them if that happened. Uh, but, you know, and actually Bad Attitude is an interesting one. There's not a lot of places where I would want that song to be used. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, would I, could somebody use it in a movie? Depends on the movie, right? Um, but I'm not going to get, I'm not going to get wealthy off of the music that I've made. I mean, <laughs> I I have all these bands on Spotify and I'm, you know, I make about $12 a quarter. Well, no, it's, but it still comes to this, but, but philosophically it still comes to that whole, the question of guilt by so, you know, being defined by your associations. I wouldn't, I, there's lots of things I wouldn't do. Um, and, but like, I, I wouldn't know until the offers came in and the offers don't come in anyway. So I don't, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's kind of an, it's an easy set of, I'll tell you one thing that would be, be important to me would be to, make sure that I got the buy-in from whoever, whichever, if, if one of the bands, if the rights were at, were requested for a specific purpose, I would mm-hmm. have to consult with the other guys. Right. Like they, they have a stake in this too. And, you know, one, I mean, Biafra, I've known Biafra for 35, 40 years. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I love the guy. Um, but I always wonder, and I've told them this, I feel like, you know, the decision, it, it, he made the right decision not to give uh, Viva Las Vegas to Levi's. And that's what, that's one of the reasons that the Kennedys broke up. And, and uh, um, then they went through all the horrific lawsuits and stuff. Uh, but I do feel like if you're in a band and you believe in democracy, the band's a democracy too. And so everybody's vote counts. And if the other guys in the band say, well, I need my kid in college and, you know, $250,000 from Levi's would really help. My share of that would help. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Like I've got to think about that. Right. I mean, that's never happened to articles of faith. I, I mean, it's never happened to any of our bands. So I've never been in that position to mm-hmm. make that decision. So no, I don't think either one of us have a pretty enough voice. <laughs> that was, there was lots of things I wouldn't do in software. 
there were things yeah. that I w there were things I would not do there too. So. Well, do tell. Give me give me a second on that. I'd like to hear. Mm, I'm still in the business, man. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Good to know. Vic has foibles when it comes to software. All right, <laughs> not even foibles, scruples. Yeah. Uh, um. So, uh, to my perception, you're going strong. Arguably, doing some of the best work you've ever done creatively. Well, thank you. Do you, Do you think? That runs eternal, that runs until the physical ability to do it isn't there? Or could you ever see the motivation waning? Or is it just you can't sit still and you got to make noise? I've never been able to stop playing music. Um, and I don't know that I, I don't know that I could. There was, a, there was a period when I first came out here to Seattle where about, Meg, hold on a second, my dog is like, hey, get over here. Um, there was a period when I first started uh, at Microsoft where I stopped. I would been about seven years where I didn't do well. Even then, I did the collaboration with Morello. So, uh, um, so I don't know if there's ever been a period when I've been totally out of it, and not writing music. I mean, I can see I can see physically getting to the place where I can't do it. Like I, you know, um, when Articles of Faith did their reunion in uh, 2010 for to play um, Riot Fest. Uh, we had arguably the best show that I've ever played in my life the last night that we played Riot Fest. And um, afterwards, there was a lot of talk amongst us about, oh, we should go out on the road and we should do this and this. And I, I got back here and I was like, will you ever play a show as good as that with Articles of Faith? And I'm like, I don't know, kind of hard to say probably not right right we i mean that it was very hard for me to pull that off anyway physically hard to pull off articles of faith because it was such aggressive music mm -hmm. you know dave had a tough time with it he had a hurt back that he was playing that show with and we were all old men you know and our bodies are failing us and i'm like so we're gonna go on the road and play a bunch of shows night after night where we're, we're playing at this level of intensity even though our bodies won't allow us to do this and we're going to be a ghost of what we were and we're going to be kind of a, a, a dad joke. And I just felt like we could do that or we could stop now and say, we went out absolutely at peak. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I really feel like that's my feeling about articles of faith. Like, I mean, I, and I don't know whether that's fair to the other guys. I think, the other guys, maybe they would they would jump at it. And I certainly, every so often, Bill Richmond, the drummer for AOF, he's here in Seattle, his family here. So when he's here in Seattle, he'll swing by. And my daughter has her drum kit in the, in the basement. And Bill will jump on his drums, and I'll pull out the guitars, and we'll start jamming. And it's just absolutely brilliant, natural, normal. We'll just, we'll, we'll just freestyle for an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And it, it's just the best thing and but like I, I I don't want to disparage what that band was which when in its day was one of the most powerful entities in that genre of music I would prefer I would prefer for the band to be legendary at that level and for the people who saw it would say I never saw anything so great or it was right up there with the Bad Brains. It was right up there with the best band in their best day. I would prefer them to have that as opposed to 
people jumping on social media and treating us the way they're treating Ginn with his perversion of Black Flag or something like that. I just, I, I, the last I just don't live like... show I played before the pandemic was with said perversion, sir. I would actually rather enjoyed myself, but I hear, I hear you. Yeah, I mean, just I don't, I just I don't want to. I'm mean, and, and at the same time, like Redshift, the band that I'm playing in now, it's a different style of music. It's still pretty aggressive. I feel like I can handle it physically. Uh, it still gets pretty heavy at times, but it's, you know, um, that band's much more about me playing guitar with with Mike and Adam and just the sync and the lock. I mean, we're a pretty good live band. People seem to like us quite a bit. We had a good thing going here in Seattle yeah. before the pandemic, and then it broke the momentum, so I don't know. Well, I, I speak the language, trust me. Um, that whole analysis lends itself to a good, probably a good closing topic. I try, I, try, I try to shoot to get these around a half hour, and we're getting right here in that neighborhood, so we're, do, we're doing well for ourselves. Right. Um, you know, a lot of that analysis has had to do with age. Uh, not so much with old mind but with old body but by the same token the perspective of a person who's been around for decades four decades five decades a lot of people walking into six decades now is different than someone who's been around for two yeah do you feel like the voice the leading voices anyway the most strident voices the political voices are supposed to come from the younger generation and it's not really it's not really our role at this point I know that you're not going to tell me that, yeah, older, older men, older women, older, older people of any ethnic background should just let, let their younger representation speak for them. You're not going to be somebody who says that people should ever be apolitical, I don't think. But I guess what I would say is the meat that's on the bone, is it with us or is it with, or is it with, is it with experience or is it with youth? It's with youth. So okay. I, would, I, would, I would say right now that, like, old white men should just – get the fuck out of the way okay um because um we didn't do such a good job of it anyway like you can look across the the landscape and see dozens of ways in which we failed we failed our role in society we failed our role economically we failed our role environmentally and you know even if it's not you and i you could you could you could easily say no no you were you're playing hardcore punk you were elevating consciousness you went and you you taught you went into some of the worst schools in america and taught in the worst schools in america all those things are true but like like as a collective white men running this country have fucked it up they didn't do a good job especially old white men and they should just sit down you should let women take the lead you should let people of color take the lead and you should offer aid and support and you should just sit down so that's my feeling about guys like me. Now, having said that, I'm a musician that plays music that's always been political, and I always will. The new Dead Ending song is called American Virus, right? Like, okay. it's, where, it's where my muse is at. Mm -hmm. And I would say, arguably, since the pandemic, the very best thing that's come out musically has been one song by Bob Mould, that was an absolute ripper that hit it right on the head, man. And, and that's from a guy who, who doesn't necessarily super political in his message, but he hit the nail on the head. So do old white guys have something to say that's worth listening to? Yes. Do old guys have something to say that must be listened to? No. 
yeah, fair enough. I, I, I agree to a large degree. And if we, if we saw it exactly the same way, we'd be boring. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap this here. Unless there is anything that you, that you would, that you would like to interject that hasn't crossed to me that, that hasn't crossed my mind. No, no. Um, well then what I would say is I'm really glad I reached out to you. This was, this was uh, a joy. I hope we stay in touch. If I keep doing this a long time, you will probably hear from me again. But uh, thanks much, Vic Bondi. Yeah, give me five minutes of your time after you turn it off. I absolutely will. Yeah. Okay. As soon as I remember how to turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on the corner of Gray Street.